Welcome to the worst nightmare of all. Reality. Explore the lesser-known stories of our unknown world. Join the pursuit of the paranormal with Ash and Greg. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Pursuit of the Paranormal. This week, we're going to do a bit of a review episode because last week was the third annual UFOidentified.co.uk minicon held in Manchester to another sold out audience. We sold out this minicon three years in a row since we started doing it, so I can't express my thanks enough to everybody that supports it, buys the tickets, and turns up on the day. Special thanks go out to the speakers, of course to be in a conference without them, and also down to storeholders, booksellers, also giving that extra bit of uh, stuff to do on the day, people can buy the books and buy all different alien UFO merchandise. So this episode is going to be a bit of a review. We caught up with each of the speakers on the day, finding out about their talks, their work, and kind of what we can expect from them next. So the first interview is with Abby and Nat from UFO Identified previous guests on the podcast, so I'll just go and play the interview now. So we've just had our first talk of Minicon 2023, and I'm here with the presenters of that talk, Abby and Nat from UFO Identified, we've we know them well, they've been on the podcast quite a few times, how are you doing guys? Hello, yeah. doing good, just recovering, coming yes. up a bit. Been a busy lead up to Minicon 2023, but we are pleased that we've just finished our talk so we can breathe a sigh of relief and get on with the rest of the day. Cool. So your talk was, I'll let you guys explain it. What was your talk about? How did that come about? It started with us getting um, this idea about missing time and did hypnotic regression actually work? So we set about researching if it actually worked. So we decided both experiencing some missing time that we would have a crack at it ourselves document it and do a presentation on it turns out it wasn't as easy as we thought it was going to be in fact it went a whole other way so what were the kind of difficulties you faced or you found when you were trying to find this nobody would do it they all said they would do it and they were all gung-ho about doing it but pinning people down on dates and actually getting them to put their name to it they just they bolted they liked it so why do you think that people weren't interested? Once he, like, people expressed initial interest, why do you think that kind of then backed off? Why do you think that was? I think everybody was dead excited when we first talked about doing it and jumped on the bandwagon and said, yeah, yeah, we'll help you with this. But as soon as they realised that, A, there was aliens and little green men involved in it, a lot of them were just like, ooh, don't want to be involved with anything controversial like that. Um, they don't want to have their names forever linked to UFOs, I think. Yeah. And then as we progressively got through and filtered more and more people dropped off, um, some of it was due to do with time constraint, but I think the main reason was that they didn't want to have their professional reputation tarnished, which is what they thought would happen if they had an affiliation with people who were doing it to, to look at regression. Well, Instead of what we thought would have been like on the cutting edge of a of some sort of discovery where all the 
the disclosure at the minute, but they don't seem to see it that way. No, but we thought it was really important to talk about that because it actually didn't go at all the way that we planned. Um, you know, we thought we'd have something to present along, you know, along the lines of this, the evidence be plated, et cetera, et cetera. But actually it went totally pear-shaped, but we thought that was equally important to, to discuss and debate really with everyone. And we've had a really lively debate with everybody today at conference about why that has happened. So during the presentation, you talked about some of the famous cases that are used regression, like the Bertie Barney Hill, Calvin Parker. Do you think that it is, no, you're not experienced yet for yourself, but do you think it is a tool that, that is should be used by investigators like this? Well, see, I don't know, because that was one of the things that I was querying about it, because uh, Calvin Parker, he ended up writing two or three different books. He kept going back and getting more and more and more, and it just seemed to be an awful lot from that one experience and monetizing it and I'm I'm not sure whether that takes away some of the credibility I think that's one of the things I discovered anyway true no good uh good points uh, there's quite a lot of like Nat said there's quite a lot of audience kind of interaction in sort of the Q&A part of of the of the talk do you think, do you think the talk went well overall well i don't know i was really nervous to even think about it i mean we, we we started off and we were showing a clip of the barney and betty regression i'm thinking oh god it's going on too long they're going to be falling asleep so there was all that going through my head still trying to remember a presentation and then to get it out but once it started to flow and people started asking questions it was just it was, it was an awesome, awesome experience. So that was your talk. Uh, I've all enjoyed listening to it. Good to be on the uh, sidelines watching it rather than having to give. So I like to say, very nerve-wracking. Um, yeah, thanks, yeah. <laughs> thing. <laughs> uh, so, Minicon 23, uh, we've, got, we've got all the other talks to come uh, the rest of the day. How's the day going so far for you? There's some really, really interesting speakers, that, but we're still running back and forward and trying to to man the front desk and man the merchandise and speak to all the the conference goers, the ones that's actually paid a ticket, paid for a ticket to come and see us. So I'm trying to get around as many of them as possible. So it's it's, it's a lot of work for for three people. <laughs> it is, it is. Uh, but it's going well. I mean, everyone seems to be enjoying themselves. Uh, we've had good feedback so far. Uh, I think there's been quite a lot of um, tube strike, not tube, like tram strikes and bus strikes and uh, stuff there. It's affected a few people getting there. But I mean, we were, so, we were sold out for the third year in a row. Yeah, we're going to go bigger. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, I think next year uh, we can definitely go bigger, uh, get a bigger venue, so we just get more. Because we are selling out, we know that demand's there and more people want it to come, but we're just like, sold out we can't yeah you know, so squeeze too many people in we're still in the middle of this one and then and we're trying to rack our brains as to how we're going to get speakers for the next one and we, we should really just stop and enjoy the day we should we should well uh yeah great thank you both uh we, we've got a lot of work to do 
the rest of the day. We've got Roy Teague's speech uh, talk coming up. And so I will, uh, let's, let's all get on with being busy. And I'll say goodbye for Natalie because she's had to go and sort out the tinfoil. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to Abby and Nat for taking the time to talk to me and for their great talk about hypnotic regression and their journey of trying to find somebody to hypnotically regress them. Uh, they both had weird experiences they want some answers for and that journey is still ongoing so hopefully we will see some kind of resolution on that in the coming months and years. On to our next talk is serving... West Midlands Police Firearms Inspector Roy Teague. He co-authored the book The Haunted Skies with John Hansen, which is available to buy on Amazon and from John and Roy themselves. Roy's talk was on police officer sightings or former police officer sightings, ex-policemen. And the book is so full. There's so many, many sightings. And like the only kind of... um, thing they had to have was that they were serving our former police officers and there's been a lot. He also talks about this kind of police attitudes towards UFOs and the whole topic and kind of banter and also some of the difficulties he's faced as quite a senior level police officer from his colleagues and from his kind of his seniors regarding his work in this topic. So I grabbed me and Greg grabbed Roy for a chat and this is what he had to say. So we're catching up now with Roy Teague, a firearms inspector with West Midlands Police Service. Uh, so you're, you're giving a talk today about your, your book and the research you've done. And you want to give us a bit of background into yourself and about the work that you do? Yeah, um, I've always been interested in this, um, uh, this topic, this phenomenon. And uh, I was approached some years back by uh, uh, another ex-police officer as a UFO researcher, John Anson, he asked if I could assist him in collating some police sightings by appealing to officers up and down the country to come forward and uh, and uh, inform us of their experiences with UFOs. I did that, uh, joined forces with John, and that's how the book came to be. Cool. So you said you kind of always had an interest. How did that interest in sort of UFOs start? Uh, since I was a kid, just from science fiction films, really. E.T., Star Wars, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, um, really big blockbusters like that. I always thought, is there something else out there? It's always been at the back of my mind. And then I really got into it uh, probably um, some years later when I joined the force and I watched that uh, documentary called UFOs and Nukes, and that really tweaked my opinion about UFOs above nuclear power stations, um, turning off nuclear missiles. Fascinating stuff. That's uh, that's when it really took off for me. Uh, so what made you want to kind of do conferences and do talks? Uh, to meet like-minded people who aren't af- uh, afraid to talk about subjects that others might shun. Um, uh, it's just nice to talk to people who've got uh, similar interests, share stories, a bit of networking in the UFO community and the paranormal community. Um, and it's nice to go somewhere and talk about something where you are amongst friends and you aren't going to be with It is like that. We find that with the podcast, that when we're talking to people, you could say stuff about interdimensionals or whatever, and the person sitting opposite you doesn't even think that that's weird. So we were speaking earlier, and you said about the fact that it's nice to... You can have a day when you're with like 
can feel normal as such. Yeah, well, the, the you know the mere fact that we're at uh, the conference we're at, you know, everybody in the audience is here for for one reason and one reason only, and that's to talk about UFOs or the paranormal. So you're amongst friends and you've got a good safe audience. How do the police service, um, especially your colleagues, how do they treat you? Because you put up a few photographs of uh, the kind of banter they give you. Yeah, so the, the senior officer's probably uh, uh, not a fan of it so much because I think they're afraid of the ridicule and stigma it bring, brings and will it bring the you know the force into disrepute? I don't think it does. I think it shows we're open-minded. But um, from my colleagues, all I've had from them is banter, you know, sticking funny pictures on my locker of, you know, uh, I... Me on a pedal cycle, uh, rock with ET, or me doing a skydive under the uh, Independence Day, huge saucer. So from them, it's just been banter, nothing, uh, nothing sinister, just good old banter. So uh, if and if people give you banter, it means at least they've accepted you. So it's a good thing. Yeah, definitely. So recent years has been an acceptance by the U.S. government and like the military and the RAF or the USAF over in America to accept UFOs and UAPs. <clears throat> Do you think that there is going to be a time coming up that the UK police service and the armed forces will take a different stance? Because you mentioned the fact that there's it's just almost shut down and you, there's no police interest in UFOs, but clearly there is. Yeah, so the, we, I say the royal we, the police itself aren't interested in UFOs because... They don't see uh, it's anything to do with law and order or crime. I would argue against that, especially in regards to some of the the abduction cases. Moving forward, would there be a change in police attitude? <sighs> Only if uh, central government pushed it. Uh, and unless they do, I would suggest not. And the only way central government will change is if the Americans do, because as we all know, the Americans are the world leaders and everyone's five or ten years behind them. I think if the Americans do, and they're making some really great strides lately with the conferences they've had for NASA and at Congress and with the Senate, they've been more open and honest about it. And I genuinely believe the reason they're doing that is because something's coming whereby they won't be able to hide this phenomenon for much longer because technology is getting better. People can use their own telescopes, look into space, all that type of stuff. There'll be a time when it'll be undeniable. And for that reason, they're drip-feeding us now so that when the realisation comes, it's not like a punch in the face. That's my honest opinion. You mentioned there about it's not like a law and order issue, so that's kind of the police stance on it. Is there anything at all in any of the kind of training what even mentions if even like because obviously you get calls from people if it's hoaxes or I mentioned people with mental health issues make these type of calls whether they're saying there's aliens or the UFOs. Is there any sort of training at all that mentions it? Absolutely none whatsoever. Right. So that is definitely not part of the police training curriculum. I can't see them ever making it a part of the training curriculum. You know, you'll you'll have a week dealing with you know your your, your core offences like theft and robbery and burglary, that type of thing, public order. You'll have, you know, a week or so on the Road Traffic Act, you know, no seatbelt, mobile phones, all that type of stuff, and enforcing those laws. But we, we, uh, we've we never, and I certainly have never had an input put on what would happen if somebody reported a UFO. If a report come in, um, you know, would we investigate? I would suggest it would depend on how busy we were at the time. If there was nothing going on, 
and we got the report, yeah, why not? We might go and take a look. Um, if uh, it was busy at the time and we had loads of outstanding 999 calls and this come in, I can tell you now it would be shelved. It would go to the bottom of the list and the, the, the call log, as we call them, would probably be closed without any further police action. So you mentioned about the US government, they're all kind of forcing the change. Because the police force is so heavily funded by the UK public, I think if my personal opinion is the only way that you would get the police on board from an official capacity would be as if it was um, led by the UK public. Because as I'm aware that the UK public is quite fickle in terms of government spending and to say that the police are now going to be, they've got, um, so we've got the, the armed response units. Now we've also got a UFO task force type thing that will manage those complaints. I think we'd have to be in a seriously different situation for that to, to see any kind of public approval. I never thought of that. Because that's a very good point because, um, yeah, it would have to be public-driven for a change because, I imagine, uh, because the public pay their council tax every month. Yeah. Uh, they uh, the, the local authority produce uh, fin uh, financial expenditure sheets of where that money's gone. And the public have a right to some extent to say where that money is spent. So if the public said, you know what, we want some money spent on UFO investigations and that's how everyone felt and there was one of these sign a petition things and over 100,000 people signed it, then maybe yes. But I don't think the public at this point in time care enough to do that. I think they're more interested, sadly, in... Uh, the next episode of EastEnders or what's on Britain's, you know, who's on Britain's Got Talent and all yeah. that business, it'd take a lot more effort from the public and, and, and push from them uh, to change central government's mind to get extra police funding to look at UFOs. I just can't see that happening in the near future. I think that the, the UK public would see it as a military response anyway. I think it's driven by military in the US and other places. So I think... Initially, I don't think the police would even get involved, apart from a disorder point of view, if something happened, yeah. and you guys would be... No, so the only time we get involved is if there's a crime in action or to preserve uh, the king's peace, yeah. prevent, prevention and detection of crime, that type of thing. Yeah. And, you you know, uh, ufology, uh, according to the police, you know, has, doesn't impact on that in any way. So it, it is really a military... It's in the military field of yeah. jurisdiction, it is, really. It is, yeah, it's containment of sky borders and yeah. stuff. Although, like I said before, I, w I would argue the case that when you get abduction cases come in, well, abduction is a crime, it's kidnapping, and yet as soon as we find out the abduction relates to an allegation uh, from uh, a UFO or extraterrestrial point of view, we would just put that down probably to mental health, let's be honest about it, and it's a shame, and uh, who is to say, if we did a bit more delving, that we might find a crime report in there, and the offender might be somewhere that... Uh, He's not from this planet, but I'm not sure how I would exercise my powers of arrest on an <laughs> offender who came from elsewhere than our solar system. Um, and I'm not really sure that they would really respect those powers of arrest myself. But it'd be interesting to find out, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, last question. How have you found the Minicon as a whole? You know what? I didn't know what to uh, what to expect. I've done a couple of talks before um, and uh, this was uh, right up there and among the best of them. Really, really uh, well organised, um, brilliant facilities, lovely people. Uh, like I say, uh, great to give a talk in front of like-minded people. Very well attended. Yeah, I, I can't fault it. Would I come again? I'd come here to speak again, and I'd come here also as a visitor to listen to anyone else that uh, was brought here. Brilliant stuff.
Nice one. Thank you, Roy. Thank you. Next up was the lunch break and the highly anticipated tinfoil hat competition, which was very well received and we had some great entries and a very well-deserved winner with a very, very, very creative tinfoil hat, let's say. So after that, everyone's fed, everyone's watered. Uh, on to our next speaker, who was Dr. Daniel Stubbins from the Cardiff Metropolitan University. So we're now here with Dr. Daniel Stubbins from Cardiff Metropolitan University. He's been giving one of the great talks today. Um, Daniel, do you want to give us a bit of background on yourself and who, who you are? Yes, yeah, so I, I'm a clinical psychologist and so I currently work two days a week in cancer and palliative care in the NHS, um, running a service there, and three days a week as a principal lecturer at the university. And so I oversee um, uh, about five to six master's thesis students, about five undergraduate thesis students, and I do the majority of teaching on a um, several modules across the university at undergraduate and postgraduate level. I have a PhD student, so yeah, quite a bit on, and yeah, family life and all that around it as well. <laughs> yeah, it sounds really busy. My daughter's doing psychology at university actually at the moment, so um, yeah, she'd be fascinated to, to have come really. Um, so what was your talk about today, if you can let So my talk was primarily about uh, two things, which were two research projects that I've done um, at the university, where they were student projects, but I oversaw and did a large chunk of it. So the first one was looking at um, what are the psychological and social needs of experiences. And I had a, a small group of just four participants that I was just looking for a qualitative analysis as to, to what they saw as their the experiences that they've been through and the psychological and social kind of impact that's had and then what unmet needs they have as a result of those experiences. And then the second study was looking at what's the personality variables of um, experiences and what kinds of dynamics um, do they have um, characterologically as to what makes them tick because I suppose I wanted to confirm or disconfirm the whole stereotype that uh, people who see UAP are slightly more just eccentric, strange people. And is that true or is that not? And we found, unsurprisingly to me, that it, that wasn't the case, that it's actually more um, agreeable, open, grounded, kind of less emotional people that tend to report UAP. Um, so in some ways that's a positive finding. But um, and, and I guess another little bit of that project was that uh, um, only... A, about 14, 15 odd percent actually report their sightings anywhere. So it's a nice of interest that there's so many more sightings that potentially actually occur because people think, oh, a thousand um, cases a year through MUFON. And if that's kind of like sort of 15 percent, there's a large chunk more that kind of potentially happen. So, yeah. How does the university view this kind of subject matter? Well, the university isn't one person so I suppose there's lots of different perspectives on it some people don't care some people do I think thinking of it as more as a body as an entity I think the rules are um, don't put the public in danger don't put um, participants in danger um, don't bring the profession and the university into disrepute and so my arguments against that is that what I'm doing 
all is always covered by ethical approval. And the other element is not bringing the university into disrepute is that I'm just looking for data and I'm asking questions. And they've been gracious enough to let me do that within the commitments I already have. Um, I'd, I'd like it if they moved to um, it becoming a, a greater focus of what I'm there to do, but that's not just in my job role because I'm also developing a, a treatment clinic sort of outside of all that and um, yeah, developing courses and, and, and other things that, that take up the time. Um, so you have students kind of like worked on these these projects. How they kind of think about something like that? Because I loved doing something like this when I was younger. Well, all the students so far that I've kind of that's maybe been allocated to me, or they've maybe chosen. Like I might give an array of topics, and then some students choose those, as where others other students just get allocated. I've not yet had one who has had a prior interest who's been fully aware of the topic and is like, this is exactly what I want to do. It's more like um, I've kind of brought them up to speed on something. They've kind of gone, okay. Um, and I have to play that very kindly and respectfully because it is a power imbalance. But if he was the, 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 their supervising lecturer come in and say, what do you think of doing this? It's hard for them to kind of go, I think that's crazy. I don't want to touch that with a barge pole. Mm. So it's kind of like it's a delicate balance between helping them feel free that, look, you literally don't have to do this, but it would be great if you do <laughs> because like, I've got a vested interest in this and I know where it needs to kind of go um, and I can help you a lot more with it because it's so much of a more tenuous thing so like so some students they might have a, a an idea about topic x and so it's like okay fine i can supervise and you can go off and do that but with this kind of topic so like, no, i'm going to do the qualitative interviews because if it goes wrong and the person turns out to be psychotic unwell it's just unfair to stick a student in that position to collect that kind of data so mm. they, they probably wouldn't be able to do it without me in some contexts as well um but you can argue that that actually leads to a better student experience and they get to work more closely with the stuff. And and all the, the, the two that I've worked with and the other two that I'm now currently working with, um, they all seem um, very pleased that they've ended up doing the topic because once you start scratching the itch, they're like, oh, my dear God, this is actually quite interesting. Mm. It's like, how could it not be? Really? Yeah, yeah. And so once once it gets over that degree of stigma, and particularly now because we've got one published, like I say, look, I've actually published this stuff. I'm not, this is, I, I, I'm not crazy. You know, we, we can actually do research on this. It's like, oh, that pipes their interest in a different way. Cool. Um, so sort of kind of talking about Minicon, you came as a guest uh, last year. I think pretty much straight away afterwards, you reached out to me wanting to talk at, at this one. Uh, so what, how, how do you think the day has gone? Have you great uh, i was really impressed with um the uh the police officer roy yeah yeah um i just can't believe that stuff around um all the uh alien crashes at schools and they had so many examples of that that was just like wow that I, i'm pretty unshockable and i was i will what i i think i said wow out loud i was like wow like that it's sort of Cause that, and particularly because in the crowd there was somebody who said that I, I, I went to that when I was at school and looked like his dad next to him that was like I, that he wasn't allowed into it they, and they were forewarned and it's like I've got kids every time they blow their nose you get an email about it like it, it would be very odd for parents not to be forewarned about something like that 
what if parents object? You know, uh, it's just that I just found that really fascinating. I'd, I'd love to see that explored more. And the number of um, uh, police officer sightings and stuff that was that was interesting. Um, very very interesting. Cool. Uh, so what's next for you? Your work and what what's coming up? Well, hopefully, now there's ne the next two projects that I talked about. So I've got one student that we're kind of trying to look into the levels of trauma that are in the group or in people who've experienced UAP because I just want to get a number on that. Like, it's, what is the proportion and to what extent? Um, and uh, alongside that, we can look into adverse childhood experiences, mental health issues, because I've kind of gone one easy route of looking at personality variables. The next is kind of like, are people mentally unwell? And even though I'm not doing, won't be doing a full assessment, it's just be an online screen. Those screening tools are used in other contexts for valid reasons to screen for mental health and adverse childhood experiences and trauma. So if we just apply that to this kind of um, uh, participant group, what do we find? Um, but it hasn't gone through ethics yet, so it's sort of it's still in the development stage. And the second project, I'd, I'd like to see how people with no awareness of this topic go when you sit them down and get them to watch like the congressional hearing and sort of say look here's some legislation and a few other little bits because I just in my own informal way of talking to people about stuff some people don't care I've had other people walk out the room because they just don't want to hear it but other people be shaken a little bit just a little bit like sort of staring blankly at the wall um, so I've had I've seen a vast response and I think if there's any whiff of we can't tell the public because they can't handle it, prove it to me. Um, and I, I, that, that's the notion I want to sort of explore because maybe people can't handle it, maybe people can't. Um, but I think more people are going to be able to handle it than not. And those that can't probably couldn't handle it other topics as well. So we can't shield everybody from every miserable thing or so. So, so yeah, that, that, they're, they're, they're the next steps that I feel I can safely try and kind of go. The, the third step beyond that is that um, if the university continue let me do research and continue and I continue building rapport by I publish papers, they look good. Hopefully, in response to that, that hopefully we can build the stage for I'd like very credible and I use my fingers as in quotations. So, like military pilots, kind of uh, air, commercial airline pilots, sort of people who would be regarded as in, incredulous, isn't that what it's, yeah. Um, I'd like to maybe try and, if any of them are traumatised, I'd like to start a little treatment service for that little group. Um, and ideally, if I can find anyone who actually admits to being first-hand, kind of working on the stuff. Because they don't have to tell me the details, but... I would be very interested to find out how they are psychologically processing what they've seen. Yeah, but but that, that that's a bit of a pipe dream. The um, finding out from first-hand experiences. Like I don't know if I get to do therapy with Lou Elizondo or not, and see you know how's he really doing. <laughs> he might not have worked on it directly, but I, I guess it's kind of that caliber of people who yeah. actually are in that because that that's that's more of the question of can people handle it? Because it's like every everyday people on the street can they handle? that, that um, congressional hearings and stuff have happened is probably not as impactful as it being in somebody's hands and just what the impact is. And I, and I think like a lot of extreme stuff, you just get desensitised to it. So I think that's what happens probably. Especially nowadays. Like it's everything, the trauma everywhere on the news, the internet is a horrible place. 
and you don't know if it's AI images or not, but I've seen burnt babies and all kinds of things coming through my Twitter feed. I have recently so, from Ben Shapiro. Yeah. So it could be yeah. real, could not be real. Yeah. Either way, people are scrolling through this stuff, yeah. and if it was just aliens and more more vehicles, are fine, whatever. You know, people kind of crack on, but let the scientists and the people who want to advance that technology and figure it out, let them kind of crack on. Or not and restrict them for reasons, like yeah, whatever the reason might be. So, yeah, uh, thanks, Dan, for taking the time to talk to us. Great talk. Thanks for having me. Thanks for speaking. Can I interview you guys just briefly? Yeah. Yeah. What what was your um, impression of what I talked about? What what stood out for you or not? I'm I'm not looking for praise. I'm just just seeing kind of impact and how it... It's great to to see the the fact that somebody's actually looking at it from an experience, a point of view, and the trauma. We've spoken to to people um, who have been an experience at abductees, and have nowhere to go. And the first time they've even spoken to anyone about it was to us on the podcast. Um, all anonymous, we, we never push a, push a story or an experience. So the fact that you've got a kind of plan where you want to go with, with this, and the fact that there is somebody, particularly in the UK, having an interest and trying to push that side of it, I think it's fascinating. I may be more encumbered than you guys, because it's sort of like you can sit down with a member of the public and talk to them, and they're just a free citizen talking to you. However, if I sit down with somebody, I have to have defensible practice, even in my off time. So so it's kind of like there's almost more hurdles for me to talk to somebody. We're very lucky, because we can literally ask any question... If they don't want to answer it, that's fair enough. But we're we're not bound by any kind of. Well, we kind of we we wouldn't ask probing questions that would put them in an uncomfortable position. Uh, we, I think we've sort of tuned ourselves. We're not about, like, ethics and stuff like. That. No, we don't have an ethics committee censoring or holding back what we ask people. Due to, to yeah, I think things probably not so much of the barrier because that's just a committee that can review yeah. things if things are safe enough. It's more. Um, defensible practice with your your practicing body of how you should practice the profession because it's sort of um, those conversations haven't happened yet at the policy level like sort of how, how do you really prove that it's going to make something worse or not well that that's a delicate balance we've had that we've spoken to people and you can physically see because we do it on zoom or on teams or whatever that you can see a bit of a change in some of them when they, when they go down sort of a dark it's emotional. You can almost to be expected, but there's no you know, kind of resolution if you don't go to those places and allow them to. And the challenge we have is that we we're not trained in any of this sort of stuff. We so a lot of times we have people contact us and we we say, look, we 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 can't really help. We yeah, people actually ask for help. Yeah, because <laughs> you've got like two, three year NHS waiting lists, and even then you've got to be really a risk to yourself or others yeah. to kind of get treatment and if you do it might be a self-help book i mean there's a massive mental health crisis and so it's, it's difficult if you open up things that it like yeah so the talk's fascinating i love the like i say the fact that somebody in the uk is doing something different to what the other speakers in here are talking about um and not just going out and investigating lights and stuff like that it's it's good to see that the the mental side of of the experience and the uap phenomena so yeah, and, and for me, very similar. Um, quite how in depth it is as well. Uh, it was quite surprising. And 
just like I say, it's something different, it's something new. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what the topic needs to kind of move it mm-hmm. forward, is where, where, where we're looking, where we can go next. Um, and, and we got, because I did a talk in the week in Wales, and one of the questions we got asked was, what what, what is the end goal? What mm-hmm. like what is the end goal for you? And we answered that, for, for us, like disclosure, whatever, the end goal for us is helping people. Mm-hmm. Being able to, people, like, like Greg said, people come to us, we have meetings every month where people come to us, tell their story, and afterwards they come to us, like thank us. So they're saying, like, that's the first time in 30 years I've ever told anybody that. Mm-hmm. Like, they'd come for meetings for a couple of months, be a bit quiet, and the more they get comfortable and confident, then they'll tell the story. Mm-hmm. And it's giving people that platform or a safe space to actually talk about it. And stuff like, like you can visibly see like, on, on the podcast as well, like the weight's left off the shoulders. Mm-hmm. So they've been carrying it for that long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the work you're doing is great, and like, say, that hopefully you'll have somewhere where people we can send people, we can refer people, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, that get the help because there's like if people have trauma, even if it is an adult experience, maybe whether that experience happened in real life or not, or whether they thought it happened, that trauma is still there, but there's nowhere for them to go. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's PTSD or yeah. trauma is there, mm-hmm. regardless of where it came from, it's still there. But if they go to doctors and say, I adopted, then now I've got. Issues, it's, it's not really yeah. Yeah, that great. Day, as always, mate. Great. 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 One day I can do that in private practice. Depends how much of a need there kind of is, and and to, to what extent sort of thing. Um, yeah, if I if I manage to become a property entrepreneur, then we had to drop a few days at the university. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I definitely think there's, I say big market. But that's not really what I mean. But there is a big opportunity to help a lot more people than probably, like you mentioned. There's there's a small number of people who report it out of a vast number of people who experience it. Even if there's a big need, the, the trouble is psychologists are usually 90 to 120 quid an hour. Mm-hmm. And if it, it, it's like, well, if you need to do that over several months, once a week, most people don't have that kind of cash. Um, and whether or not it's covered by any of the insurance companies, like sort of when they've got private health insurance. I'm pretty sure they would look like, uh, differently to somebody who they feel has probably got a more, they'd have to present with depression or something, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then then they can kind of get in and take it from from there. Really. Yeah, but but, no, I think we'd love to have you on as a guest on the podcast, really, and have a, a proper full on chat about how you're doing, how it's going, all that kind of stuff. And I think that would be great. I think people would love that, especially on the back of we interviewed somebody that we've spoken to many times, and he's looking into how. The NHS can help PTSD for experiences. I don't know. Well, the Unhidden could agree with John Priestland. They're, they're trying to sort of develop a charity, kind of an organisation that can can work to get um, 
funding and so that people can donate to and then there'll be a pot yeah. to potentially help people right. and to provide a source where it's kind of like most of the psychoeducation around this topic is potentially been vetted and there's at least like maybe check these sources out avoid these ones yeah. this is what we know this is what we maybe this is what we don't know because it's kind of like if, if if you're a brand new experiencer when how do you google the most authoritative place i mean if you've got bowel cancer you type in bowel cancer uk and you find yeah. like reputable stuff that that yeah, um, and that's kind of almost what this topic will need eventually. Yeah, I think. Super. Yeah, well, yeah. Thanks again. Uh, I look forward to see what happens in the future. Yeah. On the back end of Dr. Daniel Stubbins's talk, we gave a bit of a platform to David Johnston from the Mechanism Pod podcast. He's the British representative of the UAP Medical Coalition, who, whose mission is to inform the mental health and medical community of professionals about UFO and UAP exposure, encouraging research and improving patient care, which ties in a lot with what Daniel Stubbins has been working on as well. So make sure you check out UAP Med on X and also David Johnston and the Mechanism Pod. So moving on now to our final talk of the day, which was with Dan Zetterstrom from the That UFO podcast and Billy Adams from Disclosure Team. They've both been out to Columbia over the past couple of years, researching the dancing lights that have been seen over there, which is what their talk was about, titled Phenomenology. And we caught up with them both and you can hear what they had to say right now. So we are now here with Dan Zetterstrom and Vinnie Adams, who are giving a talk this evening at Minicon. Um, guys, introduce yourselves both quickly. I am Dan Zetterstrom from That UFO Podcasting UAP Media UK. I am Vinnie Adams from Disclosure Team and UAP Media UK. Brilliant. So uh, you talked at Minicon uh, this year. You, Vinnie should have been here last year, but wasn't. Um, he was a late pullout. And Dan took part in our UFO podcast panel last year with Andy and Frank. What made you want to come and give a talk at Minicon? Mainly because I love you guys. Uh, you, you put on a really cool event with some really cool speakers, and it's honestly just a pleasure to be a part of and, and meet everyone here that's interested. And yeah, it's it's nice to see some UK-based events kind of punching upwards, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's good that we get these kind of smaller events as well. It's a lot more personal, and you get to kind of mingle with with people and also give a presentation so it's just an honour to be here so thank you nice one I know uh, Dan you've been traipsing all over the world just a bit yeah <laughs> recently there's not a bulk I've really uh, doing some work for your talk can you give us a bit of information about your talk and what you're going to be presenting today so uh, yeah I've, I've been trekking all over the world Mexico America um, and then in the midst of all that we've been doing this project in Colombia that many got me involved with um, with Ashley Cowie, where there's basically a mountain that experiences the, these lights flashing on them, and there are reports of like saucers, tic tacs, uh, different things, and, and a lot of people locally refer to the lights as they kind of say it's ancestor spirits. So it's interesting to explore via a series called Phenomenology how people kind of interpret these phenomena with different lenses. To us, that's a UFO. To them, it's their spirits uh, or their ancestor spirits, and 
it's not the kind of thing they'd go run into a newspaper to report like us, where we're kind of like, oh, yeah, we have to put all the data in and stuff like that. Um, over there, it's more of a spiritual, personal experience. Yeah, these people, they live with it every day. So, you know, they, they're willing to talk about it. There's no stigma whatsoever. It's just part of everyday life. And in all the local towns, you just see murals of UFOs, and, you know, pictured with this mountain. It's just beautiful. And it's great to be able to speak to witnesses, both people, you know, from the towns, but also you can speak to a lot of the indigenous people as well who kind of do kind of go more to the spiritual side. So you get a kind of bit of everything. And to actually be experiencing that culture firsthand, being there, I think really helps with the, the kind of boots on the ground investigation. It's really, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say it really helps with the credibility of the, the accounts. If they've been seeing it, they don't see it as a UFO or UAP or whatever you want to call them. And that they see it as like a, their ancestors. So... Why do you think that mountain? Is it a particular mountain or is it mountains in general? Because there is another mountain in the US that experiences similar stuff, Mount Adams. Um, and I just wondered, by you saying that, is there a reason why mountains are being targeted? I don't know, that's not the right word. But. It's, yeah, I know what you mean. It's, it's funny you mention it. Uh, one of the things I did when I was tripping across America, I got to see the Brown Mountain. Mm-hmm. And uh, famously, there are the Brown Mountain lights. And they're very similar to what we experienced in, in Colombia and what people report. And I got to film them, and they look almost exact. And even the shape of the mountain is really similar. Uh-huh. So we think, we suspect it might be a geological kind of thing. But what we have to remember is, you know, the they, they tried to do a scientific study of the Brown Mountain lights to kind of come to, to a conclusion on them. And there's this big board in front of the, the lookout point that kind of explains what they were doing. And it basically said, says that science tried and gave up and that's hilarious to me. It's just yeah. like, why is science given up? This is a bona fide mystery. It's reported all over the world, you know, these balls of light on what people refer to as earthquake lights that last for milliseconds or seconds at a time. These things persist. Um, I'll let Vinny explain his science so you can kind of get an idea of what it is that we see. So it almost sounds like the Hestalen lights. Well. Very, very, very much. similar. Yeah, and that's the thing. In the Hestalen Valley, they've been studying it since the early 80s. And the, the wonderful thing about the similarities in Colombia that it is there is one main mountain peak but it is actually based in this valley with opposite peaks and it has been said over hundreds of years that the light sort of appears on one mountain and then travels straight across the valley to the other one and then just ends up on this this biggest peak and so you know through our investigations we uh, went up both peaks and it's just fascinating the similarities that these things are happening all over the world in numerous locations and like Dan said that science hasn't really cracked it yet so whatever it may be, if it is something prosaic, it's still a rare phenomena. And I think, you know, we need to try and understand it a bit more because these lights are, are very strange. You know, they almost look like plasma orbs. So this is why, you know, it's very easy for them to be associated with a, uh, a phenomenon, let's say, and why it can be related to UFOs. So, yeah, we're still kind of in the middle of the investigation. We've got more work to get out there and do, but it's a very exciting I'm just, I'm just going to nudge you because you didn't get into it. What, what did you see when you were in Colombia? Well, yeah, I was lucky enough to see the lights, to film them as well. Uh, that will be shown in the presentation. And, you know, at the time when I was seeing the lights, it was absolutely mind-blowing because I've never seen anything like it. So, yeah, this is why I'm invested in this now because I was so lucky to be a witness. I got a lot of texts with just caps lock on being like, oh, my God, look out the window, I'm seeing them, I'm seeing them. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> Um, so that way you went back, because obviously you went in 2022, you went back this year. Was there anything you did differently this year than the previous year? When you went? Yeah, we, we actually, as well as going up the mountain and kind of getting out 
the, the low-hanging fruit skeptical explanations for the lights on the mountain. Um, we also went a bit further afield and explored the culture a little more. So we went to uh, this huge lake kind of up north. What was the lake called? Lake Totter. Totter, that's it. Um, and there was, you know, there's a legend of these kind of fireballs coming off the, the an island in the middle of the lake there called the Strange Star. Um, and it's really fascinating. We got to go to that island and we saw that the indigenous kind of carved rocks and shapes and there were all these kind of, you know, icons there to be worshipped. So there seems to be this ingrained connection between religion and the phenomena in South America. And that same thing applied to Mexico as well. Yeah, one thing we wanted to do as well in season two was to try and recreate the lights ourselves. So we took head torches and, and regular torches up onto the mountain and had a team observing it at night just to see if we could sort of film the same thing and then put, do a side-by-side -side comparison. But we also had very high-intensity lumen torches as well just to try and really... Uh, sort of recreate it and um, we had thermal drones as well to see if we could you know get any extra data points that way and so we tried our best to kind of do a little bit of science as well so yeah it's very interesting results when you go out this way i've seen some of the episodes like i say the local town seems to be full of it there's like murals and such type things like ufos how, how do they kind of receive you when the locals, when I sort of say outsiders come into like, to their towns, to me very welcoming. Everyone was game for sharing their stories. When you asked, and you were respectful, uh, we we heard there was one gentleman who he had all these like UFOs hanging off his gate, and he actually approached us, came out, was really you know all suited and booted, and he kind of presented his story to us that he got a message that he was meant to pass on to the president of the United States. Wow. Um, and if I recall correctly, he wrote a letter and sent it off didn't speak to the president but he you know if, if he was a channel for that moment for some communication he he did his job there also one of the things that stands out to me is the first year we were there the police had to escort us up the mountain because there's a lot of kind of cartel members that live on the roads right. up to the mountain so you shouldn't go up there on your own because you'll just get mugged basically so we had this police escort a whole bunch and we asked them as we were coming off the mountain like oh have you guys seen the, the lights and they laughed and we were like, why are you laughing? Like, do you not believe in these lights? And they were like, no, the UFO, just say UFOs. <laughs> and they weren't mocking us for being too, too timid, you know? Yeah, that's the thing, you know, it's just like they say, they live with it every day. It's, everyone wants to talk about it. In in the first season we were out there, we, we had this big house as our kind of base of headquarters on about halfway through the, the trip. We just hosted a, a party for all locals to kind of come and have drinks. And everyone wanted to share their story, their their opinions and everything. It was just so good. It was just, it was just great to be able to have those kind of conversations without any kind of fear or ridicule. And people were just so happy that we were there to kind of look into it and just to be someone to listen, you know. What do you think that the locals are so keen to share their story with? Whereas in, say, Europe and certainly in the UK, as soon as you mention UFO, people go, ooh, I've none of that here, and, and close up. But it does seem like some of these South American countries, they are more open to the, the spiritual side. So why do you think they're more open than, than us? I, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. People there are more open to the spiritual side. Mm -hmm. And when you kind of go back and look at indigenous beliefs and the stuff that's kind of trickled down, it's all very, you know, seeing nature as, as personified kind of forces, kind of like, you know, the Greeks did and stuff like that. Uh, so they're all just happy talking about this. You know, it's very, very normal. We got one report of uh, someone that 
thought they saw Mary Magdalene walking through the town with orbs rotating around her, kind kind of like shells in Mario Kart, if you guys played that. Um, and she was just walking through, and it was perfectly normal for this person to share the story. And clearly, they're not being ridiculed by anyone else in the town. They just kind of revere this mountain. One of the things we we found really funny is that you know, when the Spanish came over, a lot of the indigenous sites they they built on, so that they were kind of stomping out the the indigenous kind of uh, just up there and peoples and what it ended up doing was actually creating a series of markers that were pointed at the mountain because of the way that they built them. So by trying to hide it, they made it more obvious. <laughs> you mentioned that there's still work to do. Are you going back out? There is plans to go back out in 2024 for season three. Uh, and again, I think we're going to keep our, our kind of base investigation around the mountain, but then we're going to go further afield again to new locations to look at other UFO cases, I think we're going to go back more into the UFO side of things with cases in more recent times. So, uh, yeah, just expanding the investigation. There's a reason at the end of uh, Monsters of California, they decide to highlight South America as kind of teeming with activity. And, yeah, we, we plan to kind of explore the area and understand that a little bit more. Hi, Sean. Uh, thank you both for taking the time and looking forward to your talk this afternoon. Thank you, guys. Thank you. So that rounds up Minicon 2023. A great day had by all the feedback we've had has been amazing. Um, and plans are afoot for Minicon 2024 already. And it may not be as mini next year. A little teaser there for everybody. If you're interested in more, seeing pictures from the day, make sure you head out the, head up to the website www.ufoidentified.co.uk. Thanks again to all the speakers. All the talks are fascinating. It was all fresh. It was all new, new information and new theories and sort of research being done, which is great to hear. And I think what the subject needs. I think personally, ufology has been a bit stagnant over the past probably couple of decades. I think this new breed of researchers and work that's being done will take us forward into the future, especially as things develop in the US and if we see any of that coming over here. So yeah, thanks everybody. Um, hope everybody had a great day. If you've got any pictures, make sure you send them to us. Love to see everybody's pictures and videos from Minicon. And we will see you all soon. Bye for now. Pursuit of the Paranormal with Ash and Greg.